So, Mark. Yes. The title of this movie is one that has deeply penetrated our popular lexicon. And no one really knows where the term came from. Yeah. Originally. Which is interesting. It's that pervasive. I mean, it's an official medical term now. Exactly. And it's having quite the renaissance these days. Oh boy, howdy. And I was wondering, in the spirit of that, can you think of any phrases or ideas that come from movies that have become a big part of how we talk? I mean, Jedi mind trick is used very frequently. Yeah. Like, if you actually stop to think about it, it's barely even in the movies, honestly. And there are even weird ones. Like, people assume that, like, the stuff that's most into our culture from Star Wars is, like, Darth Vader or Jedi Mind Trick, things that appear in the original trilogy. Basically, everyone in America knows the word Padawan and recognizes it when it, like, appears in the office or things like that. And that's a Phantom Menace invention. And, of course, don't forget, everyone's talking about how many midichlorians they have in their cells. And the number of arms that Dexter Jetster has. Just always bringing that up. But... Like, Padawan, I think, is an example of one where people don't really think about the particular movie it comes from. Or even Grasshopper. Yeah. That, too. Like, I don't know if it is actually a thing before Karate Kid, but it is because of Karate Kid, I think. Absolutely. And Shaken, Not Stirred, coming from James Bond and Dr. No. I don't even know if people stir martinis anymore. I mean, there's the whole rant in The West Wing where Jed Bartlett complains that Shaking a martini is going to give you a worse martini because they'll crack the ice and water it down. Can I tell you what's messed up about James Bond? Nothing. Shaking, not stirred, will get you cold water with a dash of gin and dry vermouth. The reason you stir it with a special spoon is so not to chip the ice. James is ordering a weak martini and being snooty about it. I don't really drink martinis because I don't really see how it's different than just a shot of vodka. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's exactly what it is, but in a cooler glass. Just really cold. Just Especially... It feels fancier. It's like, I know people that ask for their martinis without the vermouth, so I'm just like, so you just want cold vodka. That was like one time my cousin said she wanted a mimosa without the orange juice, and I was like, <laughs> so just, just champagne. straight champagne. So you, want, you would like a glass of champagne. <laughs> I guess I can make that happen for you. Can you think of any other examples of this? Uh, no. (laughs) You had a lot really uh, ready to go there. Maybe like, I am your father. Oh, absolutely. Which shows up in Toy Story 2. Yeah, you're right. Which I saw before I saw The Empire Strikes Back, and I still knew what it was. Yeah, I still knew what it was, too. Oh, I knew what that was before seeing Empire Strikes Back. There's also, of course, with great power comes great responsibility. Of course. A Spider-Man quote. Hulking out as an expression. Oh, yeah. I didn't think about that one, because it's just an expression. It's the Hulk. Like, it's kind of separate from the Hulk now. Yeah. Of course, other things we get all of the yells that permeated particularly bro culture from movies, whether it's Freedom from Braveheart or For Sparta from 300 or You Shall Not Pass in The Fellowship of the Ring. And then the quiet ones are underappreciated, in my opinion, because fly, you fools, is basically a whisper, and no one uses that as often. We should, though. Yeah. Basically, any time someone leaves a situation, someone who stays should say that to them. Exactly. That should be the common greeting. Just like I stand by Alexander Graham Bell and that we should all answer the phone with, ahoy. <laughs> That'd be so much more fun. Wouldn't it? I feel like you basically do that anyway. Well, not quite, but I guess close enough. Like, imagine that I call you on the phone. How do you answer? Well, (laughs) this is because of mom, though. But our mom, one time, a couple years ago, just decided she was going to start greeting people by saying, Howdy ho! (laughs) (laughs) And you do the same thing. Yeah. It's so much more fun and cheerful. 
Am I right or wrong that about a week ago you called up hashtag Fifi Fierce <laughs> and rather than saying hello, you yodeled? Yes, that is correct. Oh my god. <laughs> One of my favorite Simpson jokes is that Mr. Burns answers the phone, ahoy hoy, because it's such a like very niche joke that very few people get about his age. I also think that every time something dramatic happens, people should respond with blah. And the fact that I understand what you're referencing says a lot about that movie. It's a good movie. It's a good movie, but somehow that one noise has become so culturally dominant. The fact that you can make it so easily with your mouth, I think, is the main reason. It's a good factor. It also then, I think, is partially because that sound in Zimmer's score got borrowed in a million crappy trailers after that. Right. And this is, of course, reference to Inception, if you didn't get it. But I think we should move into talking about the movie, because this is a very interesting term, and Dictionary.com tweeted about it within the past couple years to explain to everyone what it means. Yeah, and there have been a lot of articles discussing this idea, both in psychology and in politics and in our mass culture. So, welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. And this, of course, is a podcast where we delve deep into important questions. Sometimes scary questions. Sometimes cool questions. Sometimes blom. Like, does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation. We will dig in and see what is there. And this week, as you have already heard, we are rejoined by our medical expert to talk about the practices seen in this film and how they could affect a person, my sister Mora. Ahoy! And Mora has joined us to discuss a film from the golden age of Hollywood, George Cukor's Gaslight from 1944, starring Charles Boyer and Ingrid Bergman. And, of course... Angela Lansbury. Angela Lansbury. In, I think, the only role I've ever seen her where she is unlikable, and it's very disconcerting. So this is Lansbury's first role. She's 17 for most of the time they're shooting it. And she plays the worst maid. She's so mean, and it's so weird. Yeah, I mean, Nancy knows what she wants, and what she wants is to take advantage of people. And it's so odd to hear her voice, because it sounds exactly the same. It sounds exactly the same. That's honestly, I think, one of the weird things, is that she's had the same voice at, like, 95 and at 17. Because I always kind of thought she had just, like, a nice old lady voice, and then you realize that's been her voice all along. That's just how she sounds. You can barely, like, you don't really recognize the way she looks at first, and then she says her first, like, hello, Wista, and you're like, oh my god. (laughs) So she was like, working in a department store, and her mom was active in, like, arty communities in Los Angeles. So the guy who wrote this screenplay, John Van Drutten, was at one of the parties and was like, oh, you should audition for this movie. So Angela Lansbury got the part. She told her boss at the department store, like, yeah, I'm quitting. I have another job. And he's like, well, you're doing really well here. Like, what are they paying you? I'll match the salary. And she's like, $500 a week. And he's like, never mind. She got that much on her first movie? According to a couple of sites I saw. Wow. That's a lot. She also got an Oscar nomination for this movie. Did she really? Yeah, her first appearance. She just was crushing it from day one, and then she became one of the most weirdly revered TV characters (laughs) of all time, Jessica Fletcher. Also a bad person, because Jessica Fletcher is a murderer. No, she's not. She stops the murders. Mm, Does she, though? Yeah, she investigates them. Don't you think it's weird that... 
every town she goes to has a murder. <laughs> I mean, we just don't see the town she goes to where a murder doesn't happen. So therefore, we cannot assume that those towns exist. I think the cultural dominance of Murder, She Wrote, is one of the most fascinating moments in TV <laughs> history. <laughs> because everyone in America watched this, like, happy-go-lucky murder show about an older author who decides to solve crime. I love the logic of Murder, She Wrote. That, like, every small-town police department is like, we can't solve this crime, but here's this lady who writes books. Maybe she can do it. She's never, like, specifically brought in. Right. She's always just, just on like, the happens scene. to be there. It's a very Miss Marple situation. Not a Hercule Poirot situation. Anyway, back to Gaslight. Back to the film Gaslight. <laughs> so I think Gaslight is interesting when we talk about remake culture because Gaslight is based on a British play from 1937, which is called Gaslight, although in various productions it had other names. That was then made into a movie in the UK in 1940, which was a big critical hit. Once that movie was a success in the UK, MGM bought the rights to make an American version of it. The British version had not been released in the U.S. Part of MGM's stipulation was that the 1941 had to be destroyed because they what? didn't want unfavorable comparisons with, like, that British one's really good and yours is not so good. That didn't wind up happening because some of the prints for the 1940 version were labeled Angel Street, which is one of the names of the stage version of Gaslight. So it's saved because the stage version had these different names. Oh, that's crazy. So do people think that one is better still? Because this one is very good. Yeah. This is very good. There is still some critical consensus that the 1941 is a little bit better. It is more contained to the house, so you don't have the Italy stuff. That was invented in this version of the story. Okay. And one of the other big changes in the American 1944 version of the movie is that Brian Cameron, the police detective, is younger and more attractive to make him a possible romantic interest. Whereas in the play and in the British version, he's an older detective who had been involved in the original investigation. Okay. And Which that's what gets him interested in pursuing it again. Honestly makes more sense. Oh, definitely. Yes. But I do love Joseph Cotton. But I also think this guy, he might not have been like totally involved in the investigation, but he, oh, well, I, no, I guess, never mind. Forget I said this. I was going to say he knew her aunt, but that was well, as like a young fan. He was a cute fan. Yeah. Yeah. He was weirdly attached to this famous opera singer. I yeah. love imagining the little 12 year old boy who's like so in love that even the old opera singer is like, he was my most dedicated fan. <laughs> like when she's telling stories to her niece. Just shows how boring life was in 1910 <laughs> that a 12 year old, or I guess this would have been like the 1890s where a 12 year old is obsessed with opera. Otherwise, it's just a stick in a hoop. <laughs> <laughs> so this movie was a hit in the United States. It made $2.3 million at the box office, which if we just convert that straight to $2019 is $32 million. When you factor in the value of money and cost of living changes in that too, that's a good chunk of change. And then, as I said, Angela Lansbury was nominated for an Oscar that year. Ingrid Bergman won the Oscar for this movie. The movie also won the Oscar for Black and White Interior Art Direction. Now we have one Art Direction Oscar. This is a separate one for Interiors and in Black and White. So there were four Art Direction Oscars? I guess I'm so. assuming, because they must have had the color ones, too. Yeah. They also gave out Black and White and Color Cinematography Oscars until 1966. And this movie was nominated for the Black and White Cinematography Award, as well as for Best Picture, Best Actor for Charles Boyer, Best Writing, and black and white cinematography. I feel like it would be easier to be a black and white 
designer because it, you can just have colors that clash and it doesn't matter. Well, you can still see color gradients in black and white. Right, but it's not like you're going to see like two colors next to each other that look horrible. You're just going to see like if it's a slightly darker shade of gray. I feel like it's different challenges though because especially at this time just having color was like so impressive. Yeah. As it is that just having some color is enough. That's probably true. Whereas black and white is really subtle and you have to make sure the grays that you're using are different enough to create contrast. Yeah, that's true. So had either of you seen Gaslight before? No. No. So I saw it a couple of years ago. I showed it to some of my students one time and I love this movie. I really do too. It's like so creepy and unsettling. Yeah, it freaks me out. And Angela Lansbury is in it. And Dame Mae Witty as (laughs) Mrs. Thwaites. I love her so much. Is that the lady from the train? Yeah. (laughs) I love her so much. She's so nosy. She's so weird. Dame Mae Witty is like a legend of like early British film. She was born in 1865. Wow. She was the first woman to be made a dame in the entertainment industry. Interesting. And Equity, the... UK Actors Union was founded in her home. Wow. And at 72, she moves to the United States to star in an American adaptation of a play that she was in, in Britain, wins the Oscar for that, and then becomes a permanent US citizen playing characters like Miss Thwaites usually. What an impressive lady. Miss Thwaites is the best because when she says, I go for a walk in the square every morning to greet the flowers, I did not expect her to verbally greet the flowers <laughs> every morning. But there's a shot of this woman walking through the park saying, hello tulips, hello daisies. And I was just like, what is <laughs> happening right now? This is why we need a class revolution. <laughs> Because she has time to do that. (laughs) And then she brings so much bread to feed the pigeons. And there's like hundreds. And she's like, oh, there's not as many today. Let's be fair. It's only tuppence a bag. That is true. But the greeting of the flowers. I loved her on the train so much. Because she's just like the classic nosy old woman who's weirdly obsessed with murder. I feel like this trope is She reads all of Jessica Fletcher's books. (laughs) Essentially. And then she... It just casually mentions this thing. I assumed it was just like a nice little walk she took and not making everyone in the neighborhood uncomfortable (laughs) by audibly greeting flowers. It's so clear that everyone hates her. It is. Yeah. She's loathed. But anyway, besides this weird comical character, everything else in this movie is horrifying. Yeah. He is so creepy. And it's really creepy. Everyone talks about psychological thrillers, but there's usually some other element of horror, like some gore, anything to raise the stakes a little. This movie is just a man torturing a woman with his words. And that is why it is terrifying. Yeah. It's the idea that it could happen. Exactly. It definitely could happen. Yeah. All he has to say is, oh, you're forgetful. And then suddenly she starts doubting her whole sanity. And by isolating her, there's nobody to tell her otherwise. Exactly. And like the little touch of like the fact that he hired a maid who is hard of hearing so that when Paula is saying like, I'm hearing stuff above stairs, the maid literally doesn't hear it. Right. And then he tells Nancy as he hires her, like, don't bother the missus because she is crazy. Always come to me with stuff and then flirts with her so that she turns on Paula Paula so fast. Nancy also straight up propositions Gregory at one point. Yeah, but I like he's given her signals before that. Sure. Yeah, he like flirts with her right in front of Paula just to mess with Paula. God, he's trash. He's real bad. This was a big departure for Charles Boyer, who usually played like fairly conventional romantic leads. He was coming off two Oscar wins 
And so for him to take this sinister turn was seen as like, wow, he's really showing his range here. Which I think would be a fun change. Yeah, and I, I th- think it works in the time really well for that, where like you're used to seeing him as this romantic figure. And in Italy, where he's like sort of sweeping her off her feet, you're like, would you go along with this after knowing someone two weeks? Maybe not, but like it's Charles Boyer. So would, like you're gonna do it. People would want to trust him probably. Like watching the movie, they would want to trust that he would be a good character if he's been this good person. So it's like kind of a really strong casting choice. Yeah. Exactly. And then Ingrid Bergman is always a very strong casting choice. Ingrid Bergman is the best. She's so good in this, and her performance is so good because there's so many, like, really subtle touches. But then you also get the full, like, 1940s movie woman freakouts, where she's just, like, tearing her hair and screaming, like, oh, oh, for, like, minutes <laughs> at a time. And the balance between the two is so fun to watch. Yeah, Bergman had been kind of reluctant to do this movie because she thought of herself very much as being this sort of, like, independent, strong-minded person. And she's like, I don't know that I can play that timid, that convincingly. But she... She did a great job. She did a great job. She actually spent some time staying in a mental hospital and observing people and trying to get a sense of, like, the mental state there and physical characteristics and stuff and incorporating that. Oof, that would not have been fun in the 40s. No. A lot of people would be electrocuted in front of her. Yeah. (laughs) So this is going to be... One of our worst romances we've ever talked about. <laughs> oh, yeah. Up there with The Shining, I'd say. Yeah, sounds I about right. It, it'll be very fun. You guys should watch this movie if you haven't seen it's it. It's real good. It is good. It is, like, I truly understand gaslighting after watching this movie. Like, you kind of understand it as a concept when you read about it in, like, a scientific setting, but this movie is a perfect encapsulation of what it would look like. Also, before we get into the romance, I just want to mention that George Cukor was, like, the doyen of the underground Hollywood gay scene at this time, and I think that's so cool. Oh. Yeah, he's a fascinating guy. He is, and there's rumors that he was fired off of Gone with the Wind because Clark Gable had been a rent boy in Hollywood and had been one of Cukor's clients and told David Oselznick that he had to fire Cukor because he might spill the beans. Wow. I had not heard that version of it. It is pretty much accepted that Gable was behind Kukor's firing off Gone with the Wind. I had heard it that Gable was like, I gotta look like a like a manly man, and this guy directs movies for women. It's possible both are true. It is possible. I prefer my version because it is <laughs> scandalous. Oh, yeah. And Kukor was known to be very interested in women characters, which is really cool. Right? Yeah, he directed the Philadelphia story. He directed the 1954 Star is Born with Judy Garland. He won his Best Director Oscar for My Fair Lady. He would continue to meet with Vivian Lee and other actresses in Gone with the Wind because later directors and David L. Selznick did not care about these women and their motivation. So they would meet with Kukor because he was the only one that would actually help them act. It's a really fascinating career. Yeah. So I think it's interesting that he has made such a wide variety of movies. And I think this one is really cool because it is such an interesting look at a strange, horrifying psychological phenomenon that is mostly, I would say, mostly used on women in relation abusive relationships like this. This movie freaks me out because I feel like it is very realistic and it makes me terrified to date. I think the key is you've got to avoid Italian men. I can do that. That seems easy enough. Yeah. To paint with a broad brush. A very broad <laughs> brush. Do we want to have a quick, like, 
Mora Nurse Corner. Have you come across this at all, like in medical education? Not actually very much, but I was thinking earlier today that this may have been a better movie to bring up Munchausen Syndrome for. I thought of that watching because it. Because I actually feel like it's very similar. Like he's convincing her that she is not well and like not well enough to see other people and that she is forgetful. Like he's convincing her of all these things that aren't true for his own benefit. I would say the difference is that in Munchausen's by proxy, he would believe that she was in fact sick. Yeah. Whereas here he is deceiving her and mm-hmm. manipulating her. Right. For a better example of Munchausen's by proxy, the Octavia Spencer movie Ma that came out this year is a really interesting representation of that. Okay. Where she won't let her kid like go to school or go out of the house and basically keeps her confined to the upstairs. Ugh. I didn't even Spoilers know. for Ma. Yeah, I didn't <laughs> even know that happened in that movie. Uh, speaking of other interesting things behind the scenes of Gaslight, there was some pretty serious billing drama because Ingrid Bergman was under contract with another studio at the time. And Charles Boyer wanted top billing on the movie. It was part of his contract. But David Oselznick wasn't willing to loan Ingrid Bergman to MGM unless she had top billing on the movie. So there was a lot of jockeying and they eventually agreed on what's called sandwich billing, which was common at the time, where you put the female actor sandwiched between two popular male actors. That's so odd. It's yeah. weird. Is Joseph Cotton the third? Yeah. Okay. And Cotton at this point is coming off Citizen Kane and prior to that he had been active in Orson Welles' Mercury Theater community. So he's also coming off Shadow of a Doubt, which is... According to Hitchcock, his favorite movie, it's a great story where, in a way, it's almost Joseph Cotton in the Boyer role, where he convinces everyone that he's this great guy, and he's known for being charming kind of before this, and he uses that to play this criminal who everyone believes is a great guy, including his niece, but then she's the one that starts to suspect him. It's a great movie. Interesting. Uh, There's actually another Hitchcock connection to this movie because Patrick Hamilton, who wrote the play Gaslight, also wrote the play Rope which became the Hitchcock movie. What a weird movie. The weird movie. I love it. <laughs> For all its terrible depictions of what homosexuality does to you. I believe it makes you a murderer? Yeah, exactly. You choke chickens and then commit murder. Maura, can <laughs> oh you talk God. about the medical process for that? Uh, no. <laughs> That's classified. <laughs> oh, it's, so it's real, but you can't tell us. Yes. <laughs> Anyway, every week we break down the romance of a movie into five major points, analyze the ups, the downs, the realisticness of it all. The twists and turns, and the so, gases and the lights. Yeah. I mostly focus on gas. Is that supposed to be a fart joke? Because it was really bad. I feel like bad. it is. It's not, not a fart joke. <laughs> it's really bad. So, Mora, as our guest of honor, will you please provide the first point? Yes. Tell me, Paula. You are in love. Yes, it's something that has never happened to me before. Something I never expected would happen, but suddenly it is as if nothing else existed. Even my music, which used to mean so much to me. So some background information. Paula lived in London with her aunt, who was this famous opera singer. And her aunt is strangled to death. And so then she moves to Italy and kind of grows up there. And while she's there, she meets this man, Gregory. And they very quickly enter into like a relationship. So this is point number one? That's point number one. Very brief. Yeah. She's been like living there, studying music, just like her aunt. And she's like kind of sucking in her music lesson. Yeah. But it's kind of interesting because her teacher is... Maestro. Yes. 
is like, what? Well, you know, I'm I'm just confused on why you've been so bad recently, basically. It's like, you've like, been happier, but you suck. And she's like, I've just been distracted. I'm in love. And I was talking about this movie with our mom, and she was like, don't you think she should be better if she's in love? <laughs> like, that should improve her No, because she can't think about the notes, because she can only think about Gregory. I think the point is that opera is suffering. Yeah. Opera is an art form in which you should be in pain. Well, that's probably true. But yeah. also the maestro is just like, being happy is more important for art. So go off and enjoy your love. Yes. So this then is great. she leaves and then we We're, get into we point learn. two. Oh, oh, this is point two. Uh, yes. Well, point one was very brief, but you can. So point two is just that they met. Point one is that they met. Okay. Yeah. And then two weeks later, she's telling her opera teacher about it. Yes, it's very quick. But longer than some romances we've covered. That is true. Like, already they've been together longer than West Side Story. Yes. So, in point two... You're not angry with me. Angry? If you hadn't come, I should have sent for you. Paula is talking to Gregory, and she's like, you know what? I want to go away for a while, just be on my own, make sure this is really what I want to do, because this is clearly moving, like, very quickly, and she just wants to decide, like, make sure this is what she wants to be doing with her life, he's who she wants to be with. And he's already clearly being like, let's get married, and she's like, I don't know anything about you. Yeah, so she wants to understandably take this time to be by herself. She takes this train. Um, Meets Miss Thwaites. Yes, a wonderful woman. Who just is going on and on about like, oh, you should come visit London. It's wonderful. I'm reading this book about murders. And Paula is like, that seems very gory. And she's like, no, murder is lovely. There's this house where I live where someone was once strangled and I keep trying to get inside the house, but no one lives there, so they won't let me in. And Paula's like, where do you live? And she's like, Thornton Square. And Paula is like, crap. Yeah, because that's where Paula and her aunt used to live. So she's very uncomfortable with this conversation. Miss Thwaites is obsessed with her aunt's murder. It's weird hearing Ingrid Bergman talk in a Swedish accent. Yes. I'm so unused to it. It was very odd to hear her speak as she probably normally sounded. <laughs> yeah. So she she's on the train with Miss Thwaites. the train. And then when she gets off the train, this was so creepy. She gets off the train and Mrs. Thwaites is like, oh, goodbye. Like, come visit me in London sometime. And all of a sudden you see a hand on Paula's shoulder. I assumed it was like a train operator making sure she was getting away from it before it pulled out of the station. It was creepy. And then you turn and see that it's Gregory. And he's like, I just couldn't be apart from you. And she's like, oh, that's fine. If you hadn't come, I would have sent for you anyway. And I was like, excuse me, sir. She wanted this time to be alone. And you should have been respectful of that. To be fair, he has to pull her to him. Like he can't walk to her there because he's standing on a box because... Charles Boyer is the same height as Ingrid Bergman. Oh. So throughout the movie, he is either standing on a box or wearing two-inch heels. What? So that he will appear taller than she is. Wow. Misogyny is weird, man. Although, actually, Angela Lansbury is also wearing platform shoes throughout the movie to make her seem, like, more intense and domineering. I thought she looked tall. She did. Wow. But that made it a bigger issue when Charles Boyer was still supposed to be taller than Angela (laughs) Lansbury. Because they were both tall. So that they had to use the box more often than they planned. That's ridiculous. So anyway, um, they are now having this little vacation together and they get married and they are talking about where they're going to live and everything like that. And Paula- This is like the first gaslight. Yes. Well, so Paula agrees that she will live with him in London, even though she really doesn't want to live there because she has all these bad memories. She's like clearly very uncomfortable about the idea of living there, but he is just like, no, no, it'll be great. We'll live there. It'll be fun. He also builds it up and is like, ah, yeah, we could go live in London. Like- We could live in, like, an apartment or a house or, like, I've always wanted to live in one of those, like, nice houses on a square. Like, I know that probably wouldn't happen for us, but it would be amazing. And she's like, well, I I did inherit this house on a square that I'm terrified of. 
And he's like, oh, no, I don't want to make you live there. But, like, clearly sort he's of boxing pushing her, her in, in that direction. It's weird that she didn't sell the house in a way. Yeah, I wonder if she, like, felt like she couldn't, though, in a weird way, you know? Like, she didn't want to live there, but maybe there were still too many memories and she didn't want to get rid of it. I don't know. I feel like if I didn't want to live in a house that I owned, I would sell it. I would do. And use the money. Yeah. To buy another house in a place I did want to live. <laughs> but that's just me, I guess. That's <laughs> because you're a peasant. <laughs> so then in point three, that's where like the main gaslighting and isolation happens. Now, Paula, I think you better go to your home. We're not going to the theater. Oh, my dear, I'm afraid you're far from well enough for the theater. So they move to London. They're, like, pulling up to the house, and Miss Thwaites is outside. Yes. And she's like, oh, wonderful, people are moving in. And she sees Paula and is like, I know you. You can let me into the house so that I can see where the murder took place. And Paula is like, absolutely not. Yeah, but so then she and Gregory are moving in, and she's looking all around and, like, thinking of all the memories she's had in the house and telling him all about her aunt and everything. And Showing she's like, off, like, a big portrait of her yeah. and, like, some of her mementos. And she's like, oh, we used to always have, like, huge parties here and everything. That would be so nice. I can't wait to do that again. And he's and like, well, like, no. He's like, no, maybe, maybe down the line. But right now, we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't have parties and have people over. But he frames it as like, let's just make this like a honeymoon. Like the two of us just like in the home, loving each other. And then they hire Angela Lansbury as a maid. And he tells her, like we were saying before, like she doesn't need to bother Paula at all. She should bring all of her like issues or whatever to him because Paula's basically too frail to deal with anything. And then when they go to the Tower of London, Paula, it's like the first time they've gone outside. Yeah, it's like this big outing for them because she's never really gone excited. Anywhere. She's like, oh, I'm going to get to show you all around London. And he gives her this brooch that is like some family heirloom of his. Allegedly. And he's like, here you go. And she wants to wear it. But I think he's just like, oh, no, don't wear it right now. We need to get it fixed. But like, let me put it in your purse. I'm going to show you. I'm putting it in your purse so that you won't lose it. And because you're a, always losing things and she's like i guess and he makes a big deal about like her watch him put it in her purse and then when they're at the tower of london she's looking through her purse for something and the brooch is gone and so then she's freaking out panicking she has lost this brooch and later on she says something to him and he's just giving her a really hard time about it like i like i know i put it in there like you must just be losing things and forgetful like how could you do this she's really upset and at the tower she also walks past Uncle Brian, with his niece and nephew, who stops like he's seen a ghost. Because he recognizes Paula because she looks just like her aunt, who he was a big fan of. When he was a little boy. This is also where you see Gregory just talking about jewels. Like, he doesn't like- Oh yeah, they're looking at the crown jewels. He doesn't like money. He just likes jewels. Jewels have a life of their own. It's like an interesting idea because like, I could give you a dollar bill and being like, four different people have handled this dollar bill before. But like, the idea of these jewels as things that have existed across like, long spans of time and have this like sort of dark history of like, the blood that was spilled over them. Right. That's the way they can explain why he wants these jewels so bad. Because one of the cops basically says, you can't sell these jewels that he's trying to steal. They're too famous. Yeah. I guess we haven't really talked about the fact that he's a thief yet. And a murderer. And a murderer. <laughs> but yeah, so one of the things when they're looking through the house, Paula finds this letter that someone had written to her aunt like two Sergis days before. Bauer. Yeah, like two days before she was killed. And it's from this man, Sergis Bauer, 
And once she says the name of who the letter is from, Gregory freaks out and gets really annoyed and like snatches the letter away from her. And she's also getting kind of upset being surrounded by all these memories because she clearly has some trauma related to finding her aunt's dead body. So Gregory is like, oh, here's what we'll do. We'll take all the stuff that reminds you of her and we'll move it up into the attic and then we'll board up the attic so that you'll never have to even think about accessing it again. Yeah, and so he... Just continues to tell her that she's forgetful just with everything with the brooch. And then there was some picture frame that she supposedly moved and didn't remember where she put it and everything. And he just keeps telling her like, oh, you're so forgetful. You're tired. Just putting these ideas in her head. And so then she starts to not trust her own memory. The literal gaslight, which is that after dinner, he goes out to the office that he allegedly has, which he never allows her to go see because he's like, oh, I don't need you to decorate my office. I never pay attention to my surroundings when I'm working. So she's just like alone in the house and she notices that the gas lamps dim and then come back on again and she searches the house. She can't find anybody else. So she's convinced that she is seeing things that aren't real. She's convinced she's hearing things because she hears movement on the floors above her. Yeah, because she was thinking that like if the gas light was dimming, it's probably because another light somewhere else in the house was turned on. But she asked the maids and no other lights have been turned on. And she asks the maid, not Angela Lansbury, the other maid, to listen for noises on the floor above but she's super hard of hearing and she hears nothing and then after a while gregory even starts to tell her that her mother died in an insane asylum and was also going crazy and basically she's going to end up in the same situation the symptoms he describes for her mother are the symptoms of schizophrenia yeah and this whole time he's increasingly cruel Mm -hmm. at first he's depicting this as oh i care for you I'm worried about you from a place of love. And as it's going on, he's getting crueler and crueler to her. Yeah, there's one day where he tells her like, oh, we're going to go to the theater tonight. Like, see this show. We'll have a great time. And then when he asks her about what happened to this picture frame and she like thinks that she misplaced it or something and they eventually find it, he is basically punishing her. He's like, go upstairs. Like, we're not going anymore. It's like he's disciplining a child. That's how he treats her. Yeah. So then in point four, Paula kind of starts to stand up to Gregory a little bit. But he said there wasn't any letter. He said I was going out of my mind. Not going out of your mind. You're slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind. Why? Why? Perhaps because you found this letter no too much. She doesn't really realize the extent of everything that's going on, but the night that they're supposed to go to the theater, she then decides later on, she comes downstairs and she's like, you know what? I'm fine. I'm going to go whether you want to go with me or not. And he's like, oh no, I didn't realize you really wanted to go that badly. Yeah, that's fine. We can go. And what's crucial is that also at this event will be Uncle Brian, Brian Cameron, who works for Scotland Yard. And since seeing Paula at the tower has literally reopened the file on the Alice Alquist murder, Paula's aunt who was strangled in her home, and is trying to figure out what's the deal with these new people who have moved into the Alquist residence and has already, with Miss Thwaites, teamed up to try to get into the house and been rebuffed. And so he will be at this party as well and has been talking to the host trying to angle to be seated near to Paula so he can find out what her deal is. And at this event, Gregory is saying that he lost his watch and he's asking Paula where it is, what happened. She says she has no idea and then he finds it in her purse and she just loses it. Where he clearly has planted it. Yeah, and she just loses it and is so upset. And so he takes her home and then goes off to work and so she's alone in the house again still hearing things upstairs and she just goes hysterical she just can't take it anymore this is also crucial because she pushed hard enough to get out of the house to get to this event and he has now removed her from the event before she can actually interact with anybody right because isolating her is so important yeah and that's why he went to the event when he saw that she was gonna go without him like that's how committed she was he realized he had to go so he could stay in control. And so then the... And the reason that she freaks out 
is because she's like, I don't remember doing this. Like, what's happening to me? Like, it's genuinely very, very upsetting. Yeah, she actually thinks she's going crazy because no one is verifying the things that she is seeing or supposedly doing. At one point, he even convinces her that the letter she found at first was fake. The Sergis Bauer letter. Right. He's like, I looked at you and you weren't holding anything. It's very weird when he could have easily just been like, oh, that's a weird letter. Let me just throw that away. And she would have been fine with it instead of freaking out. Yeah, his reaction was he does not have a good poker face at all. That's like one of his biggest mistakes because then the letter becomes important instead of trash. Yeah. I just found that very confusing. Well, I think it, part of it is that he thought he had totally gotten away with it and there was no evidence that yeah. he had been the person who murdered Alice Alquist. I just right. think he should have been better about covering it up. He probably should have been. You know, criminals should know better than that. Maura knows do you have other experience. <laughs> do you have other advice for criminals, Maura? Um, not right now, but it'll come. When? <laughs> I don't know. Okay, we're going to come back to that at the end of the episode. <laughs> Instead of dating advice, it's best advice for criminals. <laughs> um, anyway... Then, the Scotland Yard man, I don't remember his name. The un- his name is Brian Cameron. Yes, that dude. So, he shows up at Paula's house and makes the maid, like, let him in. And he goes to talk to Paula and he's like, hey. And Paula tries to put him out. She's like, no, my husband's not here. Like, I'm losing my mind. Basically, leave me alone. Yeah, and he basically asks her more about what's been going on and why she feels like she's losing her mind. And what's crucial is that he notices the gaslight go down. He can hear the things moving about on the floor above. Right. So he tells her she's not crazy because for, and she is relieved because for the first time someone else is experiencing these same things. Someone is validating her perceptions. So she's telling him all about what's been going on with Gregory. They are looking through his desk and they find the letter that he had claimed that she had just imagined. And so it's really all coming to her that she's realizing like, he has been messing with me this entire time. And Brian he- has also been using the beat cop to, A, he's having the cop flirt with Angela Lansbury to find out about the comings and goings of the house. And B, they're tailing Gregory whenever he leaves and realizing that he's not going to an office. He's not leaving the neighborhood. What he's doing is going into another empty house, climbing up onto the roof, and then climbing into his own attic that way to search through all the stuff that's been stored up there. Hence why the gas lights are going down. Because he's lighting lamps in the attic. And that's why she can hear things moving, because he's moving furniture. And so then Gregory comes back, and the Scotland Yard man has left. And then Gregory comes back and realizes that his desk has been rummaged through and everything. And he's getting really upset with And the letter is gone. Yeah. So he's asking her about it. And the maid denies that any man came into the house. And Gregory is like, obviously no one was here. And so he's again, just convincing her that she's going crazy that this man was there in the house. And then the Scotland Yard man shows up again. And he and Gregory get into some chase. They go up to the attic and everything. They have a fight. Because Brian Cameron has heard of Serge's battle. Too. Mm-hmm. Right, because he was on the suspect list for the original murder, but he had vanished. Right. So he recognizes that this is This is the guy who him. killed Alice Alquist yeah. for the jewels and is now searching through the attic to try to find them. The jewels that are the crown jewels of an unnamed foreign country because Alice Alquist was so good at sex, the king of a country gave her the crown jewels. <laughs> so then in point five There's no knife here. Yes, I put it there. Look I don't it. see any knife. I put it there tonight. No, it isn't here. You must have dreamed you put it there. Are you suggesting that this is a knife I hold in my hand? Have you gone mad, my husband? Or is it I who am mad? Yes, of course, that's it. I am mad. 
the Scotland Yard man like captures Gregory, ties him up in the attic. And this is when Paula really kind of, at this point, she knows she has been right all along. She had even said at one point that she was starting to think that the Gregory that she had met, who was so kind and sweet to her, like was all just a figment of her imagination because she was like, that was so different from the person that I've been experiencing for the past several months or however long it's been. And so she goes to talk to Gregory while he's tied up in the attic. And I love this part because at this point, she starts to kind of like, kind of gaslight him in a way she's like holding a knife over him and he's saying like oh put the knife down and she goes I don't have a knife you're imagining this knife there's no knife in my hand and she's really kind of like standing up for herself also Cameron really shouldn't have left her alone with him yeah (laughs) but he's right outside the door and Gregory is tied up so maybe he was just giving them like a little moment of privacy he really should have just brought him directly (laughs) to jail yeah which he ultimately does she calls him back yeah yeah and he's carted off to jail he also gregory does admit that he made up the story about her mom and everything and she's just saying like the only reason i'm mad is because you've made me mad so anyway then at the end they take gregory off and she and the Scotland Yard man, Paula and Scotland Yard man are chatting in my favorite part of the movie. The lady from the train, what is her name again? Miss Dwight's. She just looks over, sees the two of them chatting and just goes, ooh. And that is the end of the movie. <laughs> the end of the movie is just Miss Dwight's going, well. <laughs> I loved it. Dame May Witty. It's incredible to me that they decided to end this <laughs> Intense thriller. Intense psychological thriller with a older character actress giving a line delivery that would fit in any broad (laughs) comedy of this era. Well! I love it so much. It's a great touch. Oh man, this movie's so good. (laughs) So, do we find the romance between Gregory Anton slash Sergis Bauer and Paula to be believable? I think it is somewhat believable. I think it would maybe be a little bit more believable if they had been together happily for a little bit longer beforehand, because then I think it would be harder for her to leave. I mean, I guess they are married at this point, but I feel like sometimes when people have been in relationships for a long time, it's harder for them to get out when issues do arise. Whereas if it's a very new thing, you'd think it would be easier for her to just walk away. Yeah, I do think the movie takes place over a longer period of time than we might realize immediately. Yeah, I think that's Because every once in a while, we'll get a mention of, like, how many months it's been since such right. and such a thing happened. It's it's a few months before they go to the Tower of London. That's true. But I and think... And I also think they've been, when they go on their, like, trip, I think they've been there for, like, two months or something before they move back to London. Yeah, I think the time frame of the movie feels much shorter than it really is. And I think the movie is depressingly believable in the romance. Yeah, yeah because I think it is. It is a situation where if you were in that situation, you would begin to doubt your own sanity. Yeah. It is. This is a thing that happens. A thing that happens. It is believably portrayed. And I think anyone who is put in that position would begin to feel themselves slip away. Yeah. So every episode, we rate the movie's romantic believability on a 10-point scale, where zero means we believe none of the romance. 10 means we believe all of it. Where would you guys put this? I'm thinking maybe like a 7 or an 8. I'm going like an 8 or a 9. Maybe a bit dinged for this. I think it's been like maybe four weeks before they get married. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a little speedy. Yeah. But I would probably put it at like an 8. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Do you guys think that either Paula or Gregory is dateable? Let's go with Gregory Anton in Italy. In Italy, probably sure. Maybe give it a shot. Yeah. Yeah. Probably might not go anywhere, but might be, you know, 
a fun time. In London, absolutely not. Definitely no, not. Of course not. And then Paula, I think she's pretty dateable. She's like a sweet rich lady. Yeah. The best kind. Yeah. And she likes to sing, which is nice. I was going to say, she seems too just like frail, but that's because of Gregory that's made the her result that of way. The so I think without that, she would be more dateable. Like, than think about her energy at the start of the, of the movie. movie. Yeah, she's very, she's a woman who's willing to go to a strange city in Italy on her own yeah. for multiple weeks. Everyone else is like, you're insane. And she's like, no, I'm fine. Nothing's going to happen to me. I'm just going to have a great time in Lake Como. What could happen? I'll be grabbed by a man standing on a box so he looks taller? If you had to pick a person in this movie to date, who would it be? The maestro. That's who I was going to say. He's really nice and supportive. He's just this guy who trained her aunt in opera and then basically adopts her. He does seem really nice. And he's really supportive of her. What an unbelievably generous thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? I think I would date Angela Lansbury because I what? Think, yeah. What? She's a bad horrible. person. No, she seems like she has a good time, you know? Well, she definitely has a good time. Yeah. She psychologically tortures a woman. I don't think she, she really does. knows what she, she's doing. She's does. mean. She she's kind very of mean, mean, but I feel like you guys are making her seem meaner than she was. She is flirting with a man in front of his wife, and she is very yeah. mean to the missus. And, like, when she hears that Ingrid Bergman might be sent off to a mental institution, Institution, her reaction is like, cool, that means that I could just stay and okay, openly you're right, you're live right. with Charles Boyer. If you're going to date anyone in the house, it's probably Elizabeth. Because she's like yeah. a nice old cook who is maybe hard of hearing, but she is honestly very genuinely nice. Yeah, I guess you guys are right. I kind of forgot about some of those things that happened. And I mean, the thing is, I want to date Angela Lansbury, but I don't want to date Nancy. I just kind of, yeah, okay. <laughs> That was a wild choice. I was not expecting you to say that. She just seems like fun, you know? She's mean. Sure, she's having a good time going out and, like, banging the policeman. (laughs) But she's a bad person. Well, I have nothing else to say. So, is that your answer? You would date Nancy? Or I guess I could date the Scotland Yard man, too. Brian? Yeah. Okay. He seems nice. Yeah, I think so. Um, We know that Gregory and Paula presumably do not stay together. Yes. Do we think that Paula and Brian get together? I think we are led to believe that, but I don't know if Paula's ready to trust another man. Yeah, I think they would maybe like hang out a little bit, but I don't know that it would really turn into anything. Basically, it ends with him saying, I will be willing to be emotional support for you in this trying time. And Miss Thwaites (laughs) interprets that as, All right, now- Many of the movies that we have discussed have been turned into stage musicals. This one, of course, started out as a stage play. Should it have songs added? I don't think so. I don't think so. Are you sure? It has a weird Uh, mood to have songs. I think that the movie's tie to reality is what makes it work. Yeah, that's true. And the songs would take you out of that. I don't think you want to introduce any remove from the reality of the torture. Okay. There have been some subsequent adaptations of Gaslight. Uh, Both Ingrid Bergman and Charles Boyer reprised their roles in a one-hour radio adaptation in 1946, and Boyer actually did it again in 47 in a 30-minute radio version. That is very fast to tell this story. I am surprised that you could tell this story in 30 minutes. I doubt they did it well. Yeah. In 2006, Joe Wright, director of Pride and Prejudice and Darkest Hour, was announced as developing a modern adaptation of Gaslight set in California. That was 13 years ago and nothing has come of it. I think it would be a very interesting movie to make in the modern day. Yeah, Yeah, I'd like to see how that works with modern technology. Because it can be done, and I'd be curious to see how it would be portrayed. It would basically be about phones. Like, that's what it would have to be about. 
and yeah. like the control over someone else's cell phone in a yeah. way, which would be very interesting. Speaking of things that are dicey, Mora, we're nearing the end of our episode. What advice do you have for criminals? Oh no, I don't know. It just, I don't have a stored box of criminal advice. It just comes to me every once in a while. Like, can you give us one <laughs> nugget of criminal goodness? Um, I don't know. He's, he's just so obvious about it. You know, that's the thing that really gets me. Don't be so obvious, you know? Don't be, be suspicious. A, what would be a good way to not be suspicious? Just be better. Be best? <laughs> yes. Uh, he could stand to just be kinder to her for longer. Let's just take that as a lesson for all of us. Be kind. What a great lesson. Criminals, be kind. Speaking of kind things, next week we're talking about hereditary. <laughs> uh, all right, that's a transition that just happened. I have not seen this movie yet, and I am scared. I will not be watching it. I'm thrilled to talk about the marriage at the center of this, because Tony Collette's performance in Hereditary is phenomenal. And this, I would say, is a rare movie where most people come out of it feeling bad for an older white guy who is just trying to help and support people, but he is surrounded by horrifying things. Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Reviews on Apple Podcasts really help other people to find our show. Now, I've truly hoped for people to get dating advice from a movie less than this one, but what is the best piece of dating advice you got from this movie? I would say when someone says they need time to think about whether or not they want to be with you, just spend every minute with them so that they have no choice but to end up with you. It works well for Gregory. He's a bad person. What other advice was I supposed to get from this movie? This movie is terrible for dating advice. And I didn't want to do a don't do this. My dating advice is when someone is upset, you can offer them validation like Brian does when he meets up with Ingrid Bergman. I feel like this episode is just making me seem like a terrible person. (laughs) Well, the episode is a concept at best. You are saying the things that make you seem like a terrible person. You are our most hostile guest. Oh my god. I honestly don't know what to say in this movie because this is literally a movie about abuse. Um, I guess... Be a cop, because it works out for two guys. <laughs> That's true, it does, because the one gets to bang Angela Lansbury. Yeah. Yeah. All right, there you go. <laughs> Until next time, I'm a ginger. And I'm gay, so between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye! Bye! Bye. No, it wasn't me, baby. It must have been some other body. Uh-uh, baby, it wasn't me. It was cold. Begging for bread, the lady took him in and